Today we're going to get started. We are in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Today I want to talk about something important. When you go into any new situation, a new job, a new school, uh, begin a new program of any kind, you want to find the keys to success, sort of like the keys to the kingdom. You want to find those things that you can do to help you be more successful. As we live in this day and age, it has become apparent to me that a lot of Christians don't know what to say when they face the situation of the world. When they face what's going on outside, they don't exactly know how to deal with it or how to speak to it. A lot of our friends, uh, this happened to Nicole this week. She had a friend who was asking her a question and, and Nicole would answer it. And he kept saying, but I don't understand, but I don't understand. And he kept asking the same thing over and over again. And the only way that she got through to him is she kept kind of refining the answer down and down until he went, oh, oh, I get it. You're right. Of course, for Nicole, being told she's right is like one of those light bulb moments, makes you feel better about the universe, because she's always hanging out with these boneheads at school that really, they don't get it because they're just kind of guys. And you know what guys are like when they're 18 or 19. They can't find their own feet. So it's, um, it's always a miracle when they realize that she's actually telling them something useful. If we're going to be a witness in this day and age, if we're going to shed light in the darkness, Today, I want to give you five keys to a powerful Christian witness. Five keys, five key things that you can do to help improve your witness. Now, remember, this is Paul. Paul is in prison. He told us last week in the latter half of chapter one that even the Praetorian Guard, even the Imperial Guard of Rome has noticed him and they know that he is in prison for the sake of the gospel. Wouldn't it be great if someone looked at your life and say you're Miss Burt and Miss Burt's going through a sickness of some kind and she's feeling bad, but her spirit is unbroken. And they look at her and go, Miss Burt, how is it that you keep your spirits up? Why aren't you ever downcast? Why don't you ever get angry at the world? And she says, because Jesus Christ is real. That messes with people's minds. They don't understand people whose lives can be shaped by the faith in a single deity, a single God. They don't understand how our faith makes us different than everybody else. Look around you at the people who panic and look at their walk with God if they have one at all and you will find that some of these elements that we're looking at today are missing in their life. First thing I want you to see is this. If you're gonna have a powerful Christian witness we need to be one in Christ. You as a believer need to be united with other believers. Philippians 2.1. Then if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking this same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. You know how a church stays together? over many years, over many pastors, because it has one goal, and that goal is to make Jesus Christ known. Now, in churches like this one, in churches like the one we talked about before, there are many people who operate with many agendas. Oh, I want to have a, a ministry that takes care of families. Let me translate that. I want a church that will take care of my needs. I want to have a church that has a great youth ministry. Let me translate that. I want to have a church that will babysit my children and give me some time off. 
I served in a church once where people would drive by the church and they would say, I want to bring my kid to your Sunday school class. Oh, you want to come to church? No, no, no. I don't want to come to church. I want to drop my kid off. Well, why do you want to drop your kid off? Well, you see, I want my kid to be better than I am. And I want you to teach them how to be better. And I'm thinking to myself, lady, what can I teach your kid in an hour once a week that you don't unteach them in the other 23 hours of the day every day of the week? We don't work miracles. It's not magic. It's what they see, what they observe. So if we're going to be an impactful church, if we're going to be impactful Christians, we need to be together in one thought. He says this, have the same love, that same agape that sacrifices for others, have the same feelings for one another that we support each other, we lift each other up. Paul had talked about how they rallied to him, how they took care of him, how they were part of his ministry. That's what gave Paul encouragement. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I've learned about God from your life, from how you react, from what you say, from the way you live and the choices you make, that's an encouragement to you as well. He says this, have one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. That does not mean you are not important. But let's face it, we live in a very selfish society. I heard someone the other day say, I hate being poor. I said, what do you mean you hate being poor? Well, last year I made $45,000. I only have one car and I live in a three-bedroom apartment. I am poor. Let me tell you something. I've seen poverty. I've seen people living beside railroad tracks in tin shacks who took a bath in potholes and got their water from an open sewer pipe. That's poor. What we have in America here is wealth. The brokest person in America has more than 95% of the entire world. Do you understand that? And we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we have more than everybody else. We don't panic about coronavirus. We're careful. We take care of ourselves, take care of our family, wear our masks. But we don't panic. Why? Because we serve the God who is God of the coronavirus. We serve a God who heals, a God who encourages, a God who strengthens. People who are out there in the world like Nicole's friend, a person who doesn't have any idea who God is, what God wants, what God is doing, what hope do they have? What encouragement do they have? Who are they going to look to to help them? The government? I'm sorry, the government's out for themselves. The only people that take care of us is us and God Almighty. Amen? That's why we have to be of one mind. He says, everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. I will tell you, this church can teach the world how to take care of each other. Amen? We are separated by distance. We are separated by schedules. We have to work. We are apart from each other during the week. We can't come together the way we like to. But we take care of each other, amen? When you are home and you remember the prayer requests that are made on Sunday, we pray for y'all during the week, and we know that you pray for us. We know that you take care of us. We know that you minister to us as a, as a family, and hopefully we minister to you too. That's what the world needs to see, community, 
Community is people taking care of each other, not just looking out for themselves. Look at what it says in James, James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. Why is that called the royal law? Did your parents ever teach you about the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Well, my brother used to get that wrong. He was asked one time in Sunday school, what is this golden rule? Oh, he said, oh, it's do unto others before they do unto you. And the teacher went, no, that's not right. But that's what I always heard, and that's how he was raised. But you know what? He learned it's do unto others in the same way you would have them treat you. Treat other people in the same way that you want them to treat you. Set the example for others. Where do you think our kids learn good manners? They learn good manners from grandma, grandpa, auntie, uncle, mom, and dad. Kids never do what we say, but honey, they always do what we do. Can I get an amen of embarrassment on that one? Our children are us. Now, we have parrots in my house. You know the bad thing about parrots in your house? Parrots say what you say. Anything that comes out of your mouth is going to come out of that parrot, which is why you sometimes want to shoot that parrot, because it's talking too much. You know, and, and the truth is, there was actually a murder case where the, the, the wife was murdered and the, and the husband said, I wasn't even home, I didn't do anything. And then they, they were looking around the house and the parrot started talking. And the parrot repeated the last words of the woman before her husband killed her. He said, no, honey, don't do this to me. Don't bang. The parrot was the star witness at his prosecution. They found him guilty. Why? Because the parrot only said what the parrot heard. Children only say and do what we teach them. What we teach them. You go, go into 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good but the, but the good of his neighbor. Why is that? Think about this. If I am busy taking care of you and you and you, and then I also take care of my family, what are you going to be inspired to do? You're going to be inspired to take care of us the way we take care of you. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's what draws the church together. That's how a church gets over a split. They remember why they're together. They're not together to get their own program or to get their own needs met. They're there to serve the God who gave them to each other. If the church family becomes more important than what I need for me, then the whole church prospers because there's a spirit in that church that people will be drawn to. They will be drawn to that sense of community, that place where they can belong, that place where somebody cares about them. But let's move on. There's a second thing I want you to see here. It's in Philippians 2.5. Yes, we must be one in Christ. But second, we must avoid pride. We've talked about the sin of hubris, that self-absorbed pride that makes me think that I am the golden measure of all things. Look at this. Philippians 2.5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself. That word is kenosis. He gave up all of his rights as the second part of the Trinity, as the Son of God, as the ruler of heaven. He was God, and he gave that up. He set it aside. He put it to the edge, and he became just a human being. 
He emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man his, in his external form, he, um, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. For the reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now think about this. When God existed in heaven, all three parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when they reigned in heaven, any time they were on that throne, the angels would cry what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What did um, Isaiah see when he saw the heavens roll back and he saw God on that throne? He saw all that glory worshiping God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You look in the book of Revelation. Who is it that sits on the throne? It's God the Son, the one who became flesh and blood for us. Who suffered cold, he suffered want, he suffered need. When he was in the desert, he was hungry, he was thirsty. But what he did, he disciplined himself to be that instrument through which God would save human beings. He didn't have to go to the cross. The Psalms tell us he could have called and legions of angels would have come to rescue him from that cross, to keep him from going to the cross. Consider one angel in the Old Testament slew 185,000 enemy soldiers. One angel, one servant of God, slew 185,000 enemy soldiers. What could 12 legion of angels have done? They could have obliterated the entire earth to save the sovereign son of God. But Jesus wouldn't let it happen. He allowed himself to go through that because he was the only one fit to be the perfect sacrifice, to be the one who would take on the sins of the world. He allowed himself to go through that when he didn't have to. I mean, right now, we get upset when someone ignores us or someone disrespects us or someone doesn't give us, quote unquote, our due. We get upset when we don't have our way. But guess what? The Son of God never had his way. His way was to go through all of that, all of those years, to get to that cross to die for the glory of the resurrection. Because he was the one that purchased us back from all of our stupidity and all of our wrongdoing. You ever thought about that? If someone mistreats you because you're a Christian, you're in good company. You're in the company of Jesus Christ because the same thing happened to him. Mark 10, 42 through 44. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's what we want. We want power. We want authority. We want wealth. We want people to respect us. Look at all these young kids today. What do they want to be? They want to be um, musicians. They want to be singers. They want to be rappers. They want to be the Kim Kardashians and the Jay-Zs of the modern world. That's what they want. They want to be looked up to and respected and almost worshipped. But you know what? That's not the example Jesus set. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever would be great among you must be your servant must be the one who willingly serves. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. At the Last Supper, 
Who is it that ties a towel around his waist? Who washes the feet of the disciples? It's not a servant sitting in a corner that is put there to do that dirty work. It was the Son of God himself who took those dirty, smelly feet and washed them and cleansed them and made them presentable to go to that Last Supper. All of us want this power, this authority. That's what Nicole was trying to teach this young boy about at school. That money is not the answer. Wealth is not the answer. Power is not the answer. The answer is finding your relationship with Jesus Christ. The prodigal son goes out with money and he blows it on stupid stuff. And when he comes back, he is dirty, he's hungry, he's smelly, he's filthy, he smells like a Gentile pig farm. Yet his father runs out to him, grabs him, holds him, kisses him, as filthy as he was. That's what God does to us. He grabs us at the worst moment of our life when we realize how unacceptable we are, and he brings us to himself. That's what we're to do. We can't have pride and serve God. Nobody is too good to serve God. I've heard people say, I would gladly give X amount of money to send missionaries to other countries. Oh, would you go to other countries? Oh, no, no, no. I have too much to do. I've told you the story of, of going to a very wealthy church right here in Texas and saying that isn't ministry the most important thing a man could do? Amen. Isn't it great to see people who sacrifice themselves and serve the Lord in this capacity? Amen. And then wouldn't you love to take your kids who are going to A&M, who are going to UT, who are going to Baylor, wouldn't you love to have them surrender their life to ministry, go into a foreign field where they might get sick, they might die, they will live in poverty, but they will lift up Jesus Christ. And nobody said amen. You know why? I asked the pastor's wife. Why don't you want your kid to do that? I raised my kid for better than that. Better than serving the God of heaven? How is that possible? How can we as Christians not understand that ministry is the highest calling and that every Christian is called to be a minister? You are all ministers in your field, in the place that you are, in the people that you contact. Whoever would be great must be the very least must be willing to do the thing that nobody else wants to do. Somebody has to clean toilets to church. Somebody has to vacuum the carpet. Somebody has to wipe down the tables when we have our fellowship. And those people who do that, why do they do it? Go back up to the first one. Because we are one in Christ. We do it for each other. So we have to be one in Christ. We have to avoid the sin of pride. Nobody is above serving God, ever. Third thing I want you to see, you have to work on your salvation. Now, here's the thing, ladies. I want you to understand this because this applies to you more than it applies to anybody else. You marry a man and he's wonderful and he's handsome and, and he's everything you ever wanted. And what's the first thing you do when you marry him? I'm going to fix that boy. I'm going to correct all the things that are wrong with him. I'm going to get him to where he wipes his shoes before he comes in the house, where, where he uh, hangs his pants up on, on the door where it goes in the laundry room, not throws them on the ground, where he doesn't throw his underwear on top of the couch where I just sat down. You want to have this perfect man, and you're going to fix him. Would you like to have the good news? You can't fix a man. It's impossible. It can't, you can train a dog. You can train a bird. But you cannot train a man. Whatever you marry is what you get, and every man better say one thing. I say amen, because it's the truth. We know it. Okay. 
So all you can do is work on your own salvation. Look at this. Philippians 2.12. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You don't work for salvation. You work out your salvation. You work on that. You submit yourself to God. You discipline yourself to reading the word, to praying, to asking God, God, where do I go now? What do I do? How do I speak to the situation? We all know people who are in bad situations. We know people who are in bad marriages. We know people who have trouble with their kids. How do we speak into that? Well, first of all, we work on ourselves so God can show us all the things that we need to be his children. And out of the abundance of that, then we can speak. It says this, For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. God gives us the desire to serve him. Then he gives us the ability. You understand? It goes that way. God gives you the desire to serve, then the ability to serve. It says this, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. That's where I get that from. I keep telling you, you are a light in the darkness. You have no idea how brightly your light shines compared to all the people around you who do not know God. They look at you, they can see the light. They can see the light. They can see it coming off of you in your decisions, in your smile, in the calmness of your heart, in how you deal with good times, how you deal with bad times, how you deal with death. I've done so many funerals, and I hate doing funerals for unbelievers. It is so hard because I have nothing. I have no comfort for them. If you die in this world and you have never accepted Christ as Savior, I can say nothing to you to make you feel better about the one who just left. But I can encourage you that when your time comes, you need to be ready. I always say this, and it's kind of mean, but um, I don't know any other way to say it. I will say, if, if old John could be standing here today, if the Lord let him come back and stand right here, do you know what John would say to you? Give your life to Christ. The next world is real and God's expectations are clean. You must know Christ before you leave this earth. There are no novenas. There are no candle lightings. There's no purgatory. Once you die, honey, it's over. And I don't know many churches that preach that. You know why? Nobody wants to hear it. Everybody wants to believe if you're a good person, you get to go to heaven. That ain't how it works. So I've told you, nobody is good, not even one. It's Christ who buys heaven for us when we don't deserve it. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water, but it is in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. The king makes his decisions, but it is God who guides the king. Think about that. I don't know who's going to win on November 3rd. It doesn't matter. You know why it doesn't matter? Because whoever wins on the third is going to have my prayers for the next four years. It says, pray for those in authority over you that it may go well with you. Whoever God allows to step into that position for whatever reason it is, 
I am going to pray for them because if they prosper, the country prospers, I prosper. If they do evil, the country suffers, and so do we. Think about that. All this rhetoric right now, demonizing everyone that's running for every office known to man, once it's all said and done, come November 4th, honey, you better hit your knees and pray for whoever's in that office that God would guide. Because it says right here, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his ways, but it is Yahweh who establishes his steps. You think you got to where you are because you are brilliant or you are smart or you have long sight? No, you got to where you are because God led you here. You are not in this church by accident today. You are in this church because God would speak to you. And if God would speak to you, you need to listen. So first thing, you need to be one in Christ. We all those who are believers need to be united in this one thing. Then we need to avoid pride. We need to not rely upon us, not seek our own good, but seek what is best for the Christian community. And also, too, we need to work out our salvation. Work on myself, work on my relationship to God so that I am his servant. I can be bent here and there as he would bend me. He can go, he can take me wherever he wants to take me. And that's important. The fourth thing I want you to see is this. You need to hold tightly to the truth. My friends, we live in a very confusing time. The truth is very seldom spoken in America. And lies, I mean, bold-faced, dogged lies are being told every day on our TV shows, in our schools, in our university classrooms. Look what it says. Hold firmly to the message of life. What's the message of life? Jesus saves. I have heard a mighty voice. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. There's a reason that old hymn is still around. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. He's saying, you guys hold on to the truth about Jesus that we told you so that I won't be sad on that day because I'll see you still standing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. He's in prison. He expects to be released, but he could be killed. He doesn't know. He's in prison for preaching Jesus. So he's telling the Philippians people, hey, I preach Jesus to you, so I'm in the slammer and it's okay. It's okay that I am here because you've heard the truth now. Just stand firm in the truth. That is the hope of every pastor, that when someone leaves the church, they take the truth with them and that they treasure it and that they pass it on. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to know what's going on in your own head? Ask God. God already knows. Sometimes we don't seem to understand ourselves. We don't understand the decisions that we make. Paul said, I, I want to do this, but I don't do it. And I, I don't want to do that, but I do do it. Paul was confused by his own, his own confusion. But here it is. God can show us exactly what's going on in here. And it is the word of God. It is the holy scriptures that show us who we are. You know, I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan or not, but in Harry Potter, there's this thing called the Mirror of Erised. And the Mirror of Erised shows you your deepest desire. 
And, and Harry finds this mirror and it shows him his parents, whom he never met because he died. they died when he was very, very young. And he stands there every day and he looks in the mirror and, and he sees his parents standing behind him. Well, the, the Dumbledore comes in and he says, you know, Harry, it uh, doesn't do to dwell over dreams and forget to live because he's just standing there looking at this illusion. And then he says something that's even more profound. I love this. In fact, I'm going to be using this in a sermon to come. He says this. He says, this mirror gives us neither knowledge nor truth, and men have wasted away looking into it. Think about that. The world cannot give us knowledge or truth, and we can pine away for the things of the world, the things we see on TV, the things we see on the glorious Housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever show it is you watch, whatever your guilty pleasure may be. We look at that and we want that, but there's neither knowledge nor truth in any of that stuff. Knowledge and truth is only found in the word of God. It's only here. Only this can help us understand ourselves. Only this can sharpen that two-edged sword and make us the tool that God would use. I used to watch, a, I think it was my grandfather. We had a, he didn't have a lawnmower, he had a scythe. You know, on the side of this, big curved blade on the end of a long pole. You ever watch an old-fashioned man? My grandfather was born in 1900. And he could sharpen that scythe on a file. And he would get that thing so sharp, all he had to do was lay it to that grass, and down it came. He went right through it like a hot knife through butter. That's what the Word of God should be. You should sharpen it and sharpen it and sharpen it till every time it touches you, it cuts away the stuff that's not you and leaves only what God would leave behind, which is the knowledge of himself. So we have to hold tightly to the truth. The world keeps telling us we have something new. We have something new. We have something new. No, you don't. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Look at all the lies that are being told, all of these new religions, and you will find them in the Old Testament. It's the same old garbage the Canaanites had. It's the same old lies the Egyptians had. We're falling for the same old story again and again. You know how to define insanity, right? doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. You keep going to the world for wisdom, you're going to keep proven wrong again and again. But the last one's here. So we're one in Christ. We've avoided pride. We are working on our salvation. We're working out that relationship with Jesus Christ. We're holding tightly to the truth. That's how we work on our salvation. Finally, we build up the saints. We're in Philippians 2.19. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may also be encouraged when I hear news about you. See, he wants to know how they're doing. For I have no one else like-minded, now notice this, who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We've talked about fake pastors, fake ministries, fake preachers who are only there to build their own kingdom, build a monument to their own name. Build giant cathedrals that have their name on it and not the Lord's name. People who build giant fish tanks full of millions of fish to their own glory. And then they say, we should all be fishers of men. People do this for themselves, not for the glory of God. But he says, Timothy, he cares about you. He cares about who you are as people. I'm going to send him. He says this, but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him to you as soon as I know how things will go with me. So right now, Timothy is ministering to Paul. 
As soon as Paul knows he's good, he's going to send Timothy, his right hand, back out to help the people. I am convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly, but I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Remember who Epaphroditus is. You meet Epaphroditus in the book of Philemon. Epaphroditus is an escaped slave. Epaphroditus ran away from Philemon to find freedom because he has come to faith in Jesus Christ. He comes to Paul. Paul says, no, no, you have to go back. And Epaphroditus says, what? I have to go back? But what he does, he sends a letter with him. He sends a letter to Philemon and says, Philemon, I taught you about Jesus. I taught you about freedom. I taught you about what it means to let go of the world and to embrace the things of God. If you listened to me, let this man go because he desires to serve Christ. And we know right here that as soon as Epaphroditus returned, he and Philemon were reconciled. He released him as a free man and sent him back to serve in the gospel ministry. It would have been very easy for Epaphroditus to be angry, for Epaphroditus to go, no, I'm not going to go back. I'm going to run again. But he trusted that God had a plan. And that plan worked out for his freedom and for his continued work in the ministry. So he says, I consider it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him and not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have one grief on top of another. So much is his love for Epaphroditus that if, if Epaphroditus had died, in the service of Jesus Christ, that Paul would have been wounded deeply in his spirit. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may receive him when you see him again, and I will be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord and with all joy and hold men like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for what was lacking in your ministry to me. See, the, the Philippians couldn't help him in Roman prison. But Epaphroditus could. Epaphroditus could come and minister to those needs, be there, continuing to grow, continuing to become a minister of Jesus Christ. That's important. We build up the saints by building up each other, by caring for each other, by loving each other, by praying for each other. But also, when we encounter new Christians, we invest in them. We don't send them to church. We take them to church, our church. Remember, this is not a church. This is a church building. The Quakers called them meeting halls. The church is here, inside you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You are the sanctuary of God Almighty on earth. You don't have to bring them to me, sweetheart. You are the one who will lead them to Jesus. You are the one who will disciple them. Anyone who's been a Christian more than a few years knows how to grow in Christ. Be that person. Be the Epaphroditus. Be the Timothy. Be the one that God sends out there. The question I have written at the bottom is, to whom are you sent? Who are the unbelievers in your circle? Who are the unbelievers around you? Who is God sending you to to be this amazing person, this amazing, impactful element? Every person is like Paul, and every Paul needs a Timothy. 
It begins at home. Husbands build up their wives. Wives build up their husbands. Parents build up their children. Aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, they continue to minister to the family as well. But there's people that you work with, people that you know from school, people that you have an acquaintance with, people who are maybe not unbelievers, but they are weak believers. You know, the last, the last week, um, my second oldest brother's been hanging out with Big Brother. And he comes over and he takes him out to breakfast and they sit and they talk. And he's been walking him through this process of grief, of losing his wife. And um, if, if Mike were not there, I don't know what Glenn would have done. Because Alicia has a family. That's, that's his daughter. My niece Alicia has a husband and two children. And she has a whole world that she has to keep going. So Glenn goes home to an empty house. And there's nothing but the ghost of memories. But Mike can invade that. And he is loud. And he is fun. And he will drag him out of the house. And he will make him go for a walk. And take him down to get some breakfast. Or take him out to dinner. And then... Um, when the end of the day comes, he takes a moment and says, now you go to bed, I'll see you in the morning. We can be that for other people. We can be that encourager. We can be that strengthener. All of us will go through rough times in our Christian walk. I don't know about you, but I've had some bad days as a Christian. I've had some rough patches. I had a bad day once that lasted for about six years. And it's the truth. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? You've had that bad days that last for a couple years. What brought you out was probably a believer who stepped into your life and brought a little light back, pointed you back to the cross, pointed you back to Jesus, got you back believing again. These kids are the same way. The foundation we lay for them now has to carry them through junior high, high school, college, graduate school. And hopefully the foundation we lay makes of them people who take that encouragement with them into the world. And our influence goes all over the place. Let's pray. 